Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Do you have a hunger for cinematic horror? Do you enjoy the thrill from seeing boogeymen, beasts, and butchers go about their dark work? Then all you need to do is speak of the devil, and the devil will come to you. Speak of the Devil is a podcast for all movies that have anything from demons and poltergeists to serial killers and the supernatural. I'm Kayla. And I'm Taylor. Join us as we embark on a journey through the dark recesses of horror films, from the classics to blockbusters and everything in between. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. We're not scared of anything. Are you? Hi, Declan. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I wanted to um, give a little mention to our Patreon account before we get started and uh, telling our stories. But we recently revamped the Patreon account, everyone, and we have one tier. It's $5 a month, and you get some cool features with that. Those include, we're going to send you uh, a little custom personalized thank you card. We'll also do a shout out and mention your name when you join the Patreon. We also have it open for requests. So if you're a Patreon, you can communicate with us directly, kind of just, you know, chit chat and all that. But if you have a request for a story, that's a great place to tell us some ideas or if you have some suggestions for drinks, then we would happily uh, go look at those as well. And it also provides for some early access to our featured cocktail for the story. So if you're ever listening and you're like, oh man, I wish I, I, wish I knew what the drink was in advance so that I could get all the ingredients and be ready, well, now you can. All you have to do is join the Patreon and we'll give you some, the advanced scoop on that, as well as ad-free episodes and some exclusive content that may include just interesting episodes, interesting stories, um, but also we're going to do kind of like a happy hour theme where we're just hanging around chatting, talking about some news in the, you know, true crime, paranormal, whatever stuff that's come up that we might not research as thoroughly, might not have enough information yet because it's breaking news, that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about that in some exclusive episodes for the Patreon. So if you are interested in it, go check us out on Patreon the, um, of course, Brutal Bazaar and Boozy Podcast on Patreon. That is my Patreon spiel, Declan. Yes, everybody go check us out on there. We'd like to get some more interaction with our fans, and that's probably the easiest Definitely. way to do it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, down to story time. It's story time. Uh, what story are you going to bring to us today? I'm going to be talking about Heaven's Gate. Ooh. I think yeah, I... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know. Is that the um, white outfit, white Nike shoes? Is that the Heaven's Gate? Uh, I get black, the cults black mixed outfit, up. outfit, white Nike shoes. Which okay. After I found out about the shoes, I really want a pair. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> You're such a little shoe fiend, so I get it. I get it. They, they look, they just look like normal shoes, but 
if I could get the pair that they were all wearing if they died, that would be oh, really cool. <laughs> no, that's gross. I hope you don't mean like the actual, an actual pair that came no, off no, of the no. body. Just the, okay, thank God. The, okay, I was worried not. about that for a second. All right. What are you well, going to be telling us about? I am going to be telling you about an old-timey case from the 1920s. And um, I picked this story because this is going to be released on Valentine's Day. So I thought mm. I would do the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it's like a cowboy story, right? It is not. It's a gangster story. Wow. A little after the cowboys then. It's a it's a gangster story straight out of Chicago. Okay. And when I was looking for drinks, um, one of the drinks that was that I found was the South Side, because the South Side of Chicago plays a factor in this story. And then I rec I re I remembered that we've done the South Side cocktail before and I didn't want to duplicate. So I went looking and I found a drink called the bootleg. And so that is the drink that we have today. It's called the bootleg. And the original recipe was for four cocktails. So I simplified it down so that it could be one cocktail because I wasn't going to make a huge batch of this mix that goes into it because I'm only making one drink for me. So the simplified version is as follows. It is one ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of lime juice, a tablespoon of light agave nectar, sugar, or honey. I used agave nectar. And then the original recipe counted for two tablespoons of packed mint leaves. So I just went with two large mint leaves, but you could put as much mint in it as you want. And then you take all of that and you make um, a mix with it. And the original recipe was to use the blender and to blend all of that together. And then you add in, this drink is super interesting because you can use gin, vodka, or bourbon as your liquor and I chose to go with bourbon and then top it off with two ounces of club soda. So instead of using the blender to mix my juices and sugar and mint, because my blender won't blend that small of an amount of liquid, I just muddled it in a shaker, added in some ice, put in the liquor um, and then shook it real well. Strained it into a glass and topped with club soda. So, let's give it a shot. I like that. I'm really glad Good. I went with bourbon. It kind of reminds me of uh, what was it, the thing they drink at the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, I was thinking that yeah. same thing. Because I, you must have used the yeah. bourbon as well. I did, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like it. The mint julep, is that what you were thinking? Yes, the mint julep. Yeah. yeah. Which we have also done before. But mm -hmm. I liked it. I thought it was really good. I think it's just because it has mint and bourbon together. So that's probably... True. Right. I mean, they are me that. probably fairly similar. I don't remember the mint julep, but... I remember trying it and thinking, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Turns out I like bourbon more than I thought I would. So, are you ready for my story? Yes. Okay. The reason I picked this cocktail, the bootleg, was because bootlegging is a huge part of this story. So in the 1920s in the U.S., it was often referred to as the Roaring Twenties. 
It earned this nickname because of financial prosperity that was happening at the time. Also, people were fairly optimistic about what was happening in their lives. And there were a lot of cultural and societal changes. In Chicago, it was also a time that gangsters were involved in a lot of realms. Usually, of course, not surprising, illegal ones. I don't know, you Mm -hmm. know, gangsters that do a lot of up, up, you know, a lot of stuff on the up and up, so to speak. Mm. But... Specifically, Chicago gangs had their hands in several pots, specifically prostitution, gambling, and alcohol bootlegging. Thus, my choice for our cocktail. This was the time of prohibition when it was illegal to manufacture, sell, and transport alcohol, which I can't even imagine what that was like to go from it's legal one day to the next day. It's no longer legal. How did they think that was going to go? Especially with something that addictive, like, <laughs> exactly. like it, you can have serious problems if you just quit cold turkey. So, right. I just don't understand what they were thinking, but you know, <laughs> thank God I wasn't around then. <laughs> All these things combined could lead to lucrative avenues for money for the organized crime groups. Two of the major groups in the Chicago area at the time were the Northside Gang and the Chicago Outfit. The Northside Gang was primarily Irish and led by George Bugs Moran. The Chicago Outfit began in the south side of Chicago, which was mostly Italian and headed by Al Scarface Capone at the time. There was great competition between the groups as they each wanted, of course, to be the top dog and corner the market on all their lucrative financial illegal activities. So let me tell you first a little bit about the Northside Gang. So it was founded by Dean O'Banion, who lived on the north side of Chicago, which at the time was largely populated by Irish immigrants. In his teens, he formed a street gang with several friends, Earl Weiss, Vincent Drucci, and George Moran. O'Banion and his friends became sluggers for the local newspapers at a time that was referred to as the newspaper wars. I, looking into this, I never knew that the newspaper business was such a big deal, but in the early 1900s, it apparently was, and sluggers were people who would intimidate and threaten the sellers and readers of a rival newspaper. So if they worked for newspaper A, they would go and threaten and intimidate anybody selling the opposition's newspaper. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It seems so weird that of all things to be... a bike with a basket full of newspapers and he gets a stick thrown in his folks. Probably, yeah. And then the people who read it, oh, yeah, they'd probably, you know, get something happen to them, too. I don't know. It just seems so weird. Sometimes the, the, the issues weren't just threats, though, and related to the newspapers. Sometimes the confrontations turned deadly with shootouts in bars and in the streets. All over, again, newspapers, which is shocking in this day and age, because newspapers are largely dying. I mean, our local newspaper, I think it's published like two or three days a week. We don't even have local news reporters in our town. We just Hmm. skim everything off the AP. So like our local newspaper doesn't even really show that much local, quote unquote, local news. So lots of people just dish it. So they, I swear they publish it like two or three days a week and that's it. Anyway, when Prohibition started in 1920, organized crime syndicates realized that bootlegging alcohol could be quite lucrative. O'Banion got into the alcohol trade, but the other gangs in Chicago wanted their piece of the pie as well. The Southside Gang, also known as the Chicago Outfit, was one of those. At that time, it was run by Johnny Torrio. Both Torrio and O'Banion were able to come to an agreement 
about the criminal activities and they divided up the regions of the city. So the north side and the south side got together and they said, hey, let's divvy this up so that we're all, you know, we've all got our own territories. And there was another gang, a third gang from the west side. Um, they didn't really necessarily agree with the division of the territories. So they were kind of moving in a little bit, which started some disputes, not surprising. Um, one of those disputes between O'Banion and the West Side Gang, led by the Jenna brothers, eventually led to O'Banion's death. After O'Banion's death, control of the North Side Gang went through his friends and eventually landed on George Muggs Moran. When I say it went through his friends, I mean, as soon as one took over, he got killed. And then the next guy took over and he got killed. And then jo George Bugs Moran, he was in there for a little bit longer than his friends were. The Chicago outfit, uh, they began, this is the one on the south side. They began in the 1910, um, in 1910 on the south side of Chicago, and it is part of one of the larger Italian-American mafia groups. So that's their little Chicago division, if you want to consider it that. Big Jim Colosimo came to Chicago from Italy in 1895 when he was 17 and he began criminal activities soon after arriving. He became involved in prostitution and ran several with his wife, who was a madam when they met, keeping it all in the family. He got involved in working with, politician, uh, with politicians and he was named the precinct captain and later bagman for two aldermen. His political connections allowed him to gain power as a mob boss. He centralized control of the Chicago outfit with the assistance of Johnny Torrio. Torrio brought in Al Capone to assist with the Chicago outfit, and both of those men had worked together in New York. So they knew each other for a while, and they worked pretty well together. When Prohibition started in 1920, Torrio thought that they should work their way into bootlegging, but Big Jim disagreed. In May of 1920, Big Jim went to his restaurant awaiting delivery, but instead he was shot and killed. So essentially assassinated because the thought is he didn't want to get into bootlegging. And so they were like, okay, you don't have to be involved then. It is believed that Torrio had Big Jim killed so he and Capone could take over the organization and get into bootlegging. A few years after Big Jim was killed, someone killed, excuse me, someone tried to kill Torrio. He was shot several times but survived. Recovering from his attempted murder, Torrio essentially resigned. He retired. He moved back to New York and he turned over the control of the South Side to Capone. With Capone in control, the gang continued with their money-making efforts, especially in the bootlegging realm. They sourced alcohol in Canada and would transport it down the Detroit River. Capone and his gang were a big source of alcohol, and purchasing from him was basically your best option. If an establishment chose to not buy alcohol from the gang, it often led to the business being bombed. So you either used Capone and his alcohol or you lost your business. So a lot of people felt it was a better option to go with Capone. I can't imagine why. In 1929, with prohibition still in effect, the booze trade was turning out to be quite a moneymaker to the organized crime. The North and South Side gangs both wanted to be the top supplier to the area. One of Capone's alcohol shipments was hijacked coming from Canada. Ooh, I didn't say that right. Let me try that again. One of Capone's alcohol shipments was hijacked coming from Canada. Alcohol smuggling wasn't Capone's only interest in bootlegging, though. The gang also ran some saloons, or if you want to call it a speakeasy. That's what we refer to it a lot now. But the booze trade um, wasn't the only moneymaker. The gang was also involved in gambling. Capone believed that the Northsiders were responsible for his alcohol theft, and he was really unhappy that it seemed like the Northsiders were taking some of the saloons, claiming that the speakeasies were inside of the Northsiders' territory. So there's that argument of, you're in our neighborhood and we're going to take your money. 
Moran was also encroaching on some of the outfit's uh, gambling adventures. So Capone was not happy with any of these issues, and he planned to fix the problem. On February 14, 1929, several members and associates of the Northside Gang were in a garage in the Lincoln Park neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. It's possible that the group thought they were receiving a shipment of stolen whiskey. At around 10.30 in the morning, a Cadillac sedan pulled up in front of the garage. Four men exited the vehicle and went into the garage. Two of the men were wearing police uniforms and carrying shotguns. The men in uniforms ordered everyone to line up facing the wall. At this point, men from the vehicle started shooting. Not only did they have shotguns, but they also had some machine guns, one with a 50-round drum and one with a 20-round magazine. Yeah, they had a Tommy few gun out on them. Yes. They shot the seven men multiple times, moving back and forth across all of the victims. When the shooting was over, the four gunmen went outside. To make the situation look legit, the men in uniform... Um, were walking behind the plane, the, the other guys, and the guys not in uniform were walking with their hands up. So it looked like, from the outside looking in, the cops had arrested these guys that were walking out with their hands up, but really they oh, were all in it together. That's smart as fuck. Yeah. Um, and of course, the fact that two of them were wearing police uniforms it made people think that the police were actually in on the whole killing but we're going to talk about what happens to the investigation in a couple minutes um one of the victims didn't die immediately and he was still conscious when the real police finally arrived when asked who the gunmen were he refused to answer and then he died a few hours later. So they didn't get any information out of anybody. There were seven victims in total, but none of them were the original target, George Bugs Moran. He was supposed to be at the location, but had left his home a little late, and he survived the attack. It's believed that someone that was tasked with being a lookout misidentified one of the men going into the garage as Moran, telling the shooters that Moran was there when it was somebody just dressed similarly with a similar build and stature. And so they saw somebody from afar and went, oh yeah, he's here, go in. And then they didn't even kill the right guy. Police investigated the murders, but had difficulty identifying who all was involved. There were various suspects over the weeks following the massacre and police actually charged two men a few months later, Jack McGurn and John Scalisi. However, Scalisi was murdered in May of that year when Capone learned that he and several others were planning to kill him. So they get this guy, John, arrest him, but Capone finds out that John has been planning to have him murdered. So John gets murdered, and there go the charges on the massacre. The other guy, Jack McGurn, all the charges against him were dropped due to insufficient evidence. Years later, different suspects arose, and one man, Byron Bolton, claimed that he participated in the shootings with several other men. However, his involvement has been debated, and charges were never filed against him, and everyone that he claimed that he had participated with in the shooting, they had already died. So nothing was filed against him, and everybody else was dead. So they just were like, okay, well, okay, we can't do anything. The guns used in the shooting were found in December of 1929, almost 10 months after the murders. They were found incidentally in the home of Fred Burke, who was one of the several suspects that was never charged. Burke was involved oh. in a hit-and-run accident. What's that? How were they able to deduce that those were the guns? Because I don't think forensics were really up to that standard back then. They, it had just been a new science, basically. Okay. And they did forensically match the guns. Hmm. So the like only reason that they found scene. the guns was because this guy, Fred Burke, 
Um, he had been involved in a hit and run accident. He, when he left the scene, a police officer saw him leaving the scene, chased him. There was, um, it wasn't a very long chase, but he ended up killing the cop that had seen him. It, it was a hit and run. It wasn't even anything like big. He shot the cop who chased him. And so they ended up figuring out it was him and they arrested him. And when they arrested him, they searched his house and they found the guns. So apparently they did have adequate enough forensics in the 1920s that they could match it, according to them. Okay. He was never charged with anything involving the St. Valentine's Day massacre, though, um, because the case against him for killing the police officer was stronger. So they just were like, you're going to jail. It, pff, one way or the other, you're going to jail. So they just left it alone. Over the decades, many people, historians and law enforcement, have researched the massacre, but no one has ever been charged or convicted of the murders. Although it is strongly suspected that Capone had ordered the murders, there was never any conclusive evidence to link him. He was actually out of the state at the time of the shooting, which, if he had orchestrated it, wouldn't matter. But he had an alibi because he was somewhere else, so he didn't participate in it and they just couldn't find any evidence to link him to who actually did it they didn't even have the shooters themselves so there was no way for them to conclusively say oh it was this guy and so therefore we you know got it so at this point in time it is still listed as an unsolved case and there is no way almost a hundred years later for them to conclusively say, Oh, it's these guys that did it. So seven people. Wild. A, I wonder if there's like a movie about that. I feel like that'd be a really cool movie. Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's gotta be. Oh, gangster already. movies are fun. I like gangster movies. Yeah, they are. All right, what is the story okay, that you have? Okay. So, Heaven's Gate was a cult operated by two leaders, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. The two met after Marshall was fired from University of St. Thomas for having a relationship with a male student. Oh. The two met while Marshall was uh, visiting a friend in the hospital that Bonnie worked at. The two felt an immediate connection, and Bonnie claimed that extraterrestrials had warned her of their meeting. Oh. Of course. Yeah. Starting off of hot. Of course. <laughs> Love the it. The two started hanging out more and more and studying multiple theological disciplines. Eventually, they convinced themselves that they were higher beings and chosen to fulfill religious prophecies. They then went to various churches to hand out pamphlets describing Marshall as Jesus reincarnated. Okay. But not like the way you and I probably think of Jesus. They they say Jesus is an extraterrestrial spirit that okay. has taken control of Marshall's body. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. They also described I... themselves as two witnesses to the book of Revelations. So okay. the part where like uh, the rapture comes. On mm. the end of the world, and only certain okay. people are saved. They said that they're witnesses to this. I'm guessing, not, I, you know, I'm not a religious person. I have never read the Bible. I don't, I wasn't raised with any kind of religion. We were, I was actually raised kind of without any religion because my parents wanted their kids to make up their own minds whatever they couldn't agree on something so they were like okay we're just not gonna do anything but i'm guessing that 
the people in churches probably didn't appreciate these guys coming forward and saying, Jesus is an extraterrestrial who's taken over this rando guy's body. Well, you'd think I'm that, just but they started gaining followers. <sighs> yeah. Okay. When describing their thoughts to prospective followers, they claimed that they would be killed, resurrected, and transported onto a UFO passing by the Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The two would gain their first follower, Sharon Morgan, in May 1974. She abandoned her two children to join them, and a month later, Sharon left. Oh Nettles and Applewhite were arrested and charged with credit card fraud for using Morgan's cards. Nice. Despite the fact that she had consented to their use, they still got in trouble for it. Which okay. I feel like that it's weird to let someone else use your card. I, I don't know. It is. The charges were later dropped, though. However, a routine check brought up that Applewhite had stolen a rental car from St. Louis nine months earlier, which he still possessed. Applewhite then spent six months in jail, primarily in Missouri, and was released in early 1975. For a stolen vehicle? rejoining Nettles. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I, I'm Once just saying, the... don't hold mm-hmm. on to the car. For nine months. Well, he thought he got away with it for nine months. Well, <laughs> He's like, oh, well, they, it, this car's mine now. Yeah, but it's still stolen. Yeah. If you don't have it, they're not going to catch him. They caught him because he still had the damn vehicle. At least yeah. park it down the road or something. I don't know. Right. Once released, the two started gathering disciples that were interested in contacting UFOs. They published advertisements for meetings where they recruited disciples, whom they called the crew. At the events, they purported to represent beings from another planet and the next level. That's kind of what they called, like, their the place that they were going to. They called it the next level. The next level. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They stated that those who agreed to take part in the experiment would be brought to a higher evolutionary level. The two would set up meetings with metaphysical and religious groups to preach their beliefs. And often many people from the meetings would leave their family and friends behind to follow Marshall and Bonnie. Wow. In like two instances alone, there was one uh, in Oregon they gained 20 followers just from that one meeting and one in Studio City, which they gained 25 from. Wow. People just up and left. If they park there, they Everything. weren't parked there anymore. Just, I, can't, yeah. I can't imagine like anyone coming into my life with any kind of story that would make me go, oh, I'm going to abandon my house, my car, my family, I'm going to just go live somewhere else with people I don't know and completely change my life and leave everything I've known behind. I just, I can't even imagine. I couldn't do it. That's no. crazy. I don't know. It's wild. In 1975, Marshall and Bonnie took their hundred followers and sort of disappeared. They would hike across America, sleeping in tents and using aliases to avoid being found from police. The police were looking for the group because many of the followers' families would report them missing. Right. They just leave out of the blue one day and follow these two weirdos, never to be well, heard from again. And the the... Police probably were like, hey, they're an adult. They can just ditch out if they want to. You know, it's yeah. you can you can choose to do that. So, I mean, it's it's sketchy, but there's nothing illegal against it. The group held many names before adopting Heaven's Gate. Their first name was Human Individual Metamorphosis. Oh Lord. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm definitely April, not joining anything named that. 
<laughs> in April 1976, the group stopped recruiting and became reclusive and instituted a rigid, a rigid set of behavioral guidelines, including banning sexual activity and the use of drugs. Applewhite and Nettles also solidified their temporal and religious authority over the group. Question. Hmm. So we've heard this a lot from cults that the sex stuff is often weaponized. So they uh -huh. forbid sex. Did they forbid it with everybody or was it like some of the other cults where it's like, oh, you, you can, you can't have sex with each other. You can only have sex with the founders or the cult leaders or whoever. It was you know? forbid. Like no one was okay. allowed to. All right. So no one's fucking got it. In, uh, in 1985, Bonnie had passed away from melanoma, oh. uh, which caused a lot of controversy in the group and led to a lot, led to a lot of members to leave because they were telling everybody like, hey, where there's corporeal spirits right. and reincarnated and we can't die until it's time right. to. And then she just died. Right. And then whoops, we were yeah, wrong. So, Oops, so Daisy. had to tell them that, oh, she left early. And she's waiting up there for us. Okay. Yeah. In the early 90s, they created a, a website to reach a wider audience. And spoiler alert, it's still up to this day. <gasps> it's still being ran. Wow. Really? It's yeah. not just a debt. Like, have there been changes to it? I don't think so. I didn't actually go okay. to it. I well, feel like they're going to collect my information or something. I would yeah. rather be flagged by the military or from the government for looking up, like, how to murder people than, like, looking up yeah, Heaven's, Heaven's Gate, Gate shit. <laughs> they, their website was called Higher Source, or that was what they called their business name. And they used their website to... Uh, proselytize and recruit followers. Rumors began spreading among among the group the following years that the upcoming comet uh, Hal Bop. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that wrong. Even after looking up, I think the it's Hale Bop. Hale Bop. Okay. I think it's Hale Bop if I remember. Uh, to comment, it comes around the Earth every 30 years, and they claim that. There was a UFO trailing behind it that oh. was uh, like four times the size of Earth or something like that. <laughs> something stupid. Okay. So, yeah. All right. That's what he told them was what they're trying to get to. In 1996, the group rented a 9,000 square foot house in California, which they called the Monastery. Same month they moved in, they purchased alien abduction ins insurance, which is a real thing. No. Yeah. Are you serious? What the fuck does that the cost? The company that sells it, uh, company that sells it, sold over like thirty thousand policies. Oh, <gasps> seriously? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> I gotta go look that up. Yeah, maybe a new business idea. Oh, my God. I got to go look that up because I want to know, one, how much it costs, and two, what's the payout, and three, proof. A million Like, what do you have to provide? What? Pays a out a million bucks? Pays out a million dollars if you are abducted, impregnated, or something else. It's like another. <laughs> yeah. Is it per occurrence? So, like, if I get a million if I'm abducted? And then I get another I so. million if I'm impregnated. Oh, I don't, probably not. Probably just one for the whole that thing. That would be but. really nice. I bet you Travis Walton w wished he had that. Yes, definitely. On March 19th, 1990, uh, Marshall Applewhite taped himself in a video called Doe's Final Exit, which I forgot to tell you. Uh, Applewhite and Nettles called themselves Doe and T. What? Why? Yeah. That was their like 
spiritual name. Their okay, alien so name or whatever. So is it Doe as in like John Doe or like Deer well, Doe? D-O, but it's pronounced D- oh. Doe. Doe. That's no, Instead that's do. I was wondering if it was like, I was wondering if it was dough like for bread or and tea, like if they were just really into food. And so they were like, I'm going to be dough. You like tea. You're going to be tea. Sometimes you're iced. Sometimes you're hot. I don't know. It's funny. So he filmed, uh, taped himself in dough's final exit where he talked about the group's mass suicide. And the only way to evacuate this Earth, after asserting that the comet was the sign the group had been looking for, as well as speculation that the UFO was behind it. So he explained all his beliefs in one video. By this time, the group was down to about 38 followers, including okay. uh, including Himself. Marshall. With the comet's passing rapidly approaching, they prepared for the ritual. Each member recorded a goodbye video to send to any loved ones. All 49 members dressed in black shirts with a Heaven's Gate patch on the arm and sweatpants with Nike Decades. Oh. Yeah. The the shoe looks pretty cool. I'm going to have to go check Uh, out the shoe. So they mixed a Phenorpidol with applesauce and ate it. That was washed down with vodka, and everyone tied plastic bags to their head to ensure asphyxiation. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Each member carried a $5 bill and three quarters in their pocket. According to surviving members, this was standard for members leaving the home for jobs, uh, and a humorous way to tell us that they all had left the planet permanently. $5 bill was covering the cost of vagrancy laws, and the quarters were for calling home from (laughs) payphones. After they died, they got off the UFO. They're going to call back home on the payphone. (laughs) On a payphone. And that it's only going to cost 25 cents. And they can only do it three times. I (laughs) think it's fantastic that a UFO has a payphone, because you can't even hardly find payphones in cities these days i mean why would you just find anyone on the phone with it or anyone on the street with a phone right after each one died a living member would arrange the body by removing the plastic bag from the person's head followed by posing the body so it laid neatly in its own bed uh, with faces and torsos covered by a, a square purple cloth for privacy so they were kind of laid up in coffin style with a purple sheet draped over their head and chest. I thought they all went together at the same time. <laughs> no, okay. they were. Oh. I'll explain that in a second. Yeah. Okay. The identical clothing was a uniform representing unity for the mass suicide. While the Nike decades were chosen because the group quote got a good deal on the shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Apple White was also Buying a fan bulk. of Nikes. Yeah. <laughs> Apple White was also a fan of Nikes and therefore everyone was expected to wear and like Nikes. Sounds like my type of cult. <laughs> I joined a Stop cult it. they gave me free Nike. <laughs> Within the group, Forget all the gave... religious crap and, <laughs> and the life after death stuff. You just want to know if you're gonna get cool I just shoes. Want the Nikes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Heaven's Gate also had a saying, just do it, echoing Nike's oh. slogan, but they pronounce do as dough, so just do it. Do it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. was a big Nike fanboy. Oh, my gosh. So the 39 people consisted of 21 women and 18 men between the ages of 26 and 72. They're believed to have died in three groups over three successive days, with remaining (gasps) participants cleaning up after each prior group's death. The suicides occurred in groups of 15, 15, and 9, between approximately March 22nd and March 26th. 
Uh, White was the third to last member to die. Two people remained after him and were the only ones found with bags over their heads and not having purple cloths covering their top halves. So two people didn't get the full ceremony. (laughs) I see. Yeah. Before the last of the suicides, packages were sent to various news outlets with copies of Doe's finals exit and some farewell videos from the members. Oh, could you Among imagine? those in the list of recipients was Rio D'Angelo. D'Angelo informed his boss on the contents of the packages and then got a ride from him to the Heaven's Gate home. D'Angelo found the back door intentionally left unlocked to allow access and used a video camera to record what he found. After leaving the house, D'Angelo's boss, who had waited outside, encouraged him to make calls alerting the authorities. So they just went there, filmed it all, and then called the cops, which is crazy okay. to me. <laughs> it's, it reminds me of the movie Night Stalker. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, I don't I think, think so. I think it's Night Stalker, maybe. But anyway, it's like this crazy journalist guy who like, beats the cops to everything. Like, oh. when the cops have, like, weird questions for him. It's got Jake Gyllenhaal. Well, yeah. It's super good. Yeah. But the San Diego County Sheriff's Department received an anonymous tip through the 911 system at uh, 3.15 p.m., suggesting they check on the welfare of the residents. Days after the suicides, the caller was revealed to be D'Angelo. The lone deputy who first responded to the call entered the home through a side door saw 10 bodies and was nearly overcome by a pungent odor. Oh, yeah. For real. Yeah, after a couple of cool. days of dead bodies sitting nope. in a room. In San Diego? Yeah. Yep. Super gross. It's hot as hell there. But they didn't have, like, the best AC either. Probably not. Oh, nasty. Yeah. After a courtesy, courtesy search by two more deputies, they found no one alive. They retreated until a search warrant could be procured, and all 39 bodies were ultimately cremated. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty gross. Pretty gross. gnarly. That is wild. But now I want a pair of white Nike decades. Have you looked them up to see how expensive they are? Yeah, I saw someone selling a pair for like ten grand. Yeah, I would imagine that they're probably not cheap with the yeah. link to the, the history. cult and all. Yeah, Let's see. that's crazy. Town. Vintage Nike Decade shoe, two hundred and seventy-five bucks. Probably not even my size. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, if. People want to join Patreon. If we can gather enough money from Patreon, <laughs> we can use the we can use the Patreon money. We were planning to use it for alcohol, but if people really want to help Declan buy a pair of Nike Decades, we would be on. Uh, uh, we that could be, be on board for that. Such a sick Halloween costume. Oh yeah, it would Nike Decades some sweatpants and a black shirt with a patch on it. Right? Nobody in this day and age, I don't think people would really know what it was. You'd have to go to a to to an older person Halloween party in order for people to get that. (laughs) True. Oh my gosh. Well, do you have a chaser for us? I have a watch recommendation Ooh. for the movie Manchurian Candidate. Oh, yes. On HBO. It's but the new one, movie. the new, I shouldn't say new, yes, the, the newer, newer one, newer. not the original. Yeah. The one with Denzel. Yeah. With me and Denzel That was a good movie. movie. That is a good movie for sure. Yeah. What about you, Mom? <laughs> My chaser is um, a story I saw 
that Alaska Dispatch News posted a picture of a bear that had broken into a house in Colorado. And in the picture, they, they have like a security camera inside the house and in mm-hmm. like a living room area. And the picture shows a bear in front of a piano. And it says, the caption reads, bear breaks into Colorado house, plays the piano, but not very well. Sorry. And it's hilarious. But the best part about the whole thing is that someone commented back saying, quote, he's trying his best bitch, unquote. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Oh, and I tried to find the original post to see like what the rest of the comments were, because that is like one of the best parts about social media is going to see what everybody's comments on things are. And I couldn't actually find it. Granted, I didn't, do like an extensive look for it or anything but um it was hilarious and if anybody finds the original posts and can send it to us on one of our socials that would be awesome and i would love to read the comments on it so a side note about the comment sections they can get a little nasty sometimes there's a oh 100 <laughs> percent account that it's like this innocent lady that just tells people how to make like characters using keyboards like like a three and a oh, left hand sign makes a heart right or whatever yeah yeah um but if you look at our comment sections it's just like people are able to create like art pieces using periods and like commas and stuff and it's just like the most oh heinous gosh. stuff imaginable <laughs> like people would spam like swastikas under her chat and like oh my gosh (laughs) drawings of shrek and like just holy shit weird cats and it it's insane i think she took her page down just because the comment sections were so bad but like it was it was wild (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's creative it's creative I, so i can't they literally like, look like artworks something. that were just put yeah. in the comments that, like it's weird i've i've seen some like really basic ones of like of like mm-hmm. the i don't know shrug but it's actually just like normal you know like things on a on a Keys. keyboard not yeah. Not like an actual emoji or anything like that. And I just can't think outside the box that much. Figure that out. Somebody else can figure that out for me. I'll just use an emoji. I'm fine with it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that just about wraps this episode it up. Does. Thanks for telling me that culty story. Yeah. I go save up for a pair of. Nike decades. <laughs> right. Love you. Love you. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.